It's so good to be back with you this morning uh, and to open up the Word of God together. So Acts chapter 18, we'll start in a moment in verse 24. There's a statement that you have heard, and it probably goes like this. It really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. This statement is so widely assumed to be true, it seems no one even bothers to question it anymore. There was one man named Jose Saramago who perfectly described this philosophy when he said, quote, if I'm sincere today, what does it matter if I regret it tomorrow? In other words, tomorrow, if it turns out I was wrong about everything, who cares as long as I was sincere? There are many people who will then take that thinking and apply it to God. Many intelligent people who will say, well, surely God does not care what you call him, how you approach him, what you say about him, or what you believe about him, as long as you are sincere. Now, this is what the world says, and this is what I expect to hear in the world. What bothers me and what surprises me is how often I run into this thinking in the church. This morning, I want to talk to you about something that I'm going to call the sincerity myth. The sincerity myth is this belief, and it is a false belief that says sincerity is all that matters. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today to tell you it does, in fact, matter what you believe. It does, in fact, matter what you believe, even if you are sincere. Now, for some folks, uh, this message may be challenging. What I'm going to tell you today goes very much against the current of our culture around us. And so I want to encourage you to approach this subject with a mind that is open to what the Word of God has to say, no matter how unpopular it may be. And we're going to evaluate this thing called the sincerity myth, looking at a couple of stories back to back in the book of Acts. And then when we're done, I have a few application points that I will use to wrap it up. But I want you to notice, first of all, a teacher sincerely misguided. We're going to see in this first story a teacher who was sincere, but he was sincerely misguided. In Acts chapter 18, verse 24, it says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately, many translations will say diligently, the things of the Lord, 
though he knew only the baptism of John. Let me give you some context here. The Apostle Paul was on his third missionary journey. And after he left this town called Corinth, a man appeared by the name of Apollos. We're told two things right away about Apollos. We're told that he was eloquent. In other words, he was an orator. He was a man who could stand up in front of a crowd and he knew how to keep an audience's attention. But not only was he eloquent, here's the good part. The Bible says that he was mighty in the scriptures. I don't know know about you, I like that. This phrase, mighty in the scriptures, is used only one time in all of the word of God right here to describe Apollos. You want to talk about a compliment to be mighty in the scriptures. This should be, of course, the goal for every single one of us here, not just to read the scriptures or know certain things about the scriptures. Oh, but that it would be said of us that we were mighty in the scriptures. Now, when you have eloquence and you're mighty in the scriptures, that is a powerful combination. I imagine Apollos made quite an impression. Luke, the author of Acts, also tells us that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, don't assume that that means Apollos was a Christian. The way of the Lord, that's a phrase we see numerous times in the Old Testament. It refers to the standards of God's Word, living life according to the Word of God, Apollos, He understood this. He knew the Old Testament well. He would defend it. And I bet if you asked him, he would tell you that he tried his best to do what it said. The Bible says also he was fervent in spirit. That doesn't mean he was filled with the Holy Spirit, but that means that he had a certain amount of enthusiasm for the things of God. He didn't just have some curiosity. It's not just some academic knowledge. No, he was passionate about the things of God. The teachings of God's word were really important to him. And then we're also told that he spoke and he taught accurately or diligently about the things of the Lord. The Greek literally says the things concerning Jesus. When Apollo stood up and he talked, what did he talk about? He didn't talk about politics. He didn't talk about the latest fad or fashions. He talked about Jesus. Now, at this point, everything seems fine. He's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit. He opens his mouth. He talks about Jesus. Everything seems great. Surely, this is a follower of Jesus, right? Well, At this point, we see that there was something wrong. We see that there was something missing. The Bible tells us in verse 25, he only knew John's baptism, meaning John the Baptist. This is a very contested, a very much debated passage of Scripture. And there are a lot of good people who will disagree. And so I won't take it personally. If your understanding of this is not exactly the same as mine, but let me tell you how I understand and how I see what's going on here. I believe that Apollos was a man who knew about Jesus. Apparently what he knew about Jesus was limited to what he had heard 
from John the Baptist. He knew that John the Baptist told the people that a Messiah was coming. He might not have understood exactly what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. He certainly did not understand the atoning work of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Thus, he did not understand the real reason why Jesus came. Apollos, I believe, was a man who was sincere, but he was sincerely misguided. He was, I believe, at this point in his life, sincerely lost. Look at verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, it really is an amazing thing if you read this whole passage. Aquila and Priscilla were this couple in Corinth. Uh, They met Paul when he arrived there to preach the gospel. Paul stayed in their home. They had something in common with Paul. They were tent makers. In other words, these were blue-collar folks, probably not very well-educated And yet, isn't it amazing that Apollos, this man who was both eloquent and mighty in the Scriptures, gave this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, the opportunity to pull him aside and correct him. To pull him aside and fill in those parts that were missing in his beliefs and in his theology. Now let me just pause right here because there's a very big important lesson. There's a point of application here for every single one of us. Don't you ever get to a point in your life where you think that you know so much or you're so educated that you cannot learn from that brother or sister in Christ no matter how simple or new in the faith that they may be. Don't you ever think that God can't use them to teach you a thing or two. Let me also point out to you that Aquila and Priscilla did not rebuke Apollos publicly. How many times have we seen that happen? Someone, maybe they need to be rebuked. Someone comes along and they mean well, but they do it publicly. They didn't embarrass Apollos in any way. No, the Bible says they took him aside. They pulled him aside and said, Apollos, come here. Come under our wings. Come into our home. Let's talk. We have some things we want to say to you. Apollos, we are so excited about your passion for the Word of God. And we've heard you talk about Jesus. Would you please let us share with you the rest of the story? This is why, by the way, the body of Christ matters so much. This is why... The church is so important, and what we do here and what we're doing right now is so important so that this kind of interaction like you have between Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla would happen on a regular basis, that we would be like iron sharpening iron with one another. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us the exact moment when Apollos was saved, but I want you to notice in verse 27... It says, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed, notice this, through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. 
Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice a few details here. Apollos knows about grace, the unmerited favor of God. He understands now that Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, and that we are saved by grace through faith in him alone. I believe what we have here is a new Apollos. Uh, It kind of reminds me of a man that I interviewed in Cuba years ago. He was a prospective new missionary. Some of you know him. Some of you have gone and have met him. But a man by the name of Adiel, who uh, was one of our missionaries for many years. But I remember the day I met him and interviewed him. And I'm going to be honest with you. I had my doubts. I had my doubts about this guy because I thought to myself... He's only been a Christian for a year and a half. Can he be ready to be a vocational, church-planting missionary? But as I sat down and I began to talk to Adiel, I couldn't believe his level of knowledge, the depth of his understanding of the Word of God and of doctrine. And finally, I said to him, Adiel, i got to tell you, in all my life, I've never met anyone who knew so much of the Word of God after having been a Christian for such little time. And you know what he told me? He said, Pastor Howard, I already knew the Scriptures. I just didn't know the Lord. I knew the Scriptures. I just didn't know the Lord. He'd read all the Proverbs. He'd read the Psalms. He'd read the Gospels. He knew the Sermon on the Mount. He was familiar with all of the parables. And then one day, another one of our missionaries came and shared the Gospel with him, made it personal. And all of a sudden, he believed upon the Lord. And all of that Bible knowledge that he had, that he had collected in his head, all of a sudden, all of that knowledge came together It sunk down into his heart, and all of a sudden, he became a great weapon in the hands of God, and he's still a pastor in Cuba to this day. Now, I tell you that because I believe Adiel, in that way, is like a modern version of Apollos. And maybe you've met somebody like Apollos, somebody who, compared to the typical person you'll meet, seemed like a good person, Strong work ethic, good values. They try to treat people fairly. They believe in the golden rule. They are sincere. But they're lost. They're sincere. But according to the word of God, they are separated from God by their sin. There was a time in Apollos' life when he could tell you much of what the Word of God says and how you ought to live your life. He could not tell you how your sins can be forgiven. Maybe that describes somebody you know. Maybe that describes somebody here. Maybe that describes somebody listening or watching this message right now. They're sincere. But at this point, they're lost. They need to be saved. Apollos was sincere. He was a teacher sincerely misguided. Praise the Lord, he discovered that sincerity is not enough. And he met Jesus. Well, we also see 
in this next story, a people sincerely uninformed. We see a people sincerely uninformed. In chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and, and finding some disciples. Let me pause right there. The story goes back to Paul. The Bible says he arrived at Ephesus and there he met a group of men. Later on, we're told that there were 12 of them. We're told that these men were disciples. Now you hear the word disciple and you might assume, oh, so they must be disciples of Jesus. Well, no, remember that word disciple literally means followers. As we're going to see in a moment, these men at this point were not followers of Jesus. They were followers of John the Baptist, like Apollos initially. Well, Paul is talking to these men. He's getting to know these men. And he asked them a question. Look at verse 2. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. I want you to notice the way it's translated because I believe that the King James, New King James Version gets it right. Have you received... He, the, he did not ask them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe, like some translations say, as if receiving the Holy Spirit is an experience you have that is completely separate from salvation. No, he asked them the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Now, Someone would ask, well, why would Paul ask this question? And I'm going to answer that in just a moment. But I want you to notice something. It's interesting. Paul is in Ephesus when he meets these men. Later on, when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he says something interesting in chapter 1, verse 13. And it's kind of like Paul is giving us commentary on what happened in Acts chapter 19. That sure is what it sounds like. But listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him, meaning in Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice Paul said, there came that time when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed, in other words, when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, that moment you were saved, God gave you the Holy Spirit as a seal, as God's guarantee of your salvation. The moment a man or woman is saved, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of them to live in them, and all of a sudden, you are able to live the life you never could live before. All of a sudden, with the Spirit of God living in you, you can live the life 
as God intended, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit, He begins to produce in you the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He begins to do that work and the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life is God's seal. It is evidence that you have been saved and it's God's guarantee that he's going to do everything that he said he would do for you. Well, here is Paul in Ephesus. He's talking to these men and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Again, why would Paul ask that question? I believe Paul asked that question because as he was witnessing to these men, he began to notice mm, some things that were missing. He began to, to see and hear some red flags and whatever they were saying to him. And so when he asked them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered and said, Holy Spirit? Who's that? Never heard of the Holy Spirit before. What are you talking about? You realize if you're sharing the gospel with someone and they say, Holy Spirit, never heard of the Holy Spirit. That kind of tells you something, right, about their level of understanding of the Word of God. That probably tells you something about their understanding of the gospel. And so at some point they must have mentioned being baptized. So Paul said, well, into what were you baptized? And they said, in John's baptism. In other words, John the Baptist, just like Apollos. These men had been baptized by John the Baptist or followers of John the Baptist. And just like Apollos, they had been waiting for this Messiah that John the Baptist said would come eventually. So Paul explains it for them. Look at verse 4. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, it had been 20 years since Jesus died and rose again, and yet there were still people who were followers of John the Baptist who had not heard the rest of the story. And so John, he came and told the people, hey, the Messiah is coming. You better get ready. Prepare yourself by turning away from your sin. When a person heard John and believed him and said, okay, I believe that soon the Messiah is going to show up. I want to be ready for him when he comes. They demonstrated that by being baptized. That was John's baptism. But listen, that baptism said nothing of a person's relationship with Jesus Christ. That baptism said nothing of whether or not a person understood Jesus or the fact that he died and was buried and rose again. And that is why later on when Jesus wrapped up his earthly ministry and he gave the great commission, which we recite every Sunday, said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is the means by which a person demonstrates that they have believed in Jesus. So you get to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and Peter preaches that famous sermon, and the Bible says those who received his message were baptized. Do you realize of those 3,000 people who got saved and baptized, most of them probably had been baptized before by John or one of John's followers. But when they understood Jesus, the Son of God, 
died for me and rose again. And he is Lord. They demonstrated their faith in Jesus by being baptized again. And so here were 12 men. They knew about John the Baptist. They believed that a Messiah was coming. They were waiting for that Messiah, just like many Jews in the world today. John, they didn't realize that the Messiah John told them about had already appeared. They didn't know that John said of Jesus, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They didn't understand that John said of Jesus, I'm not, a, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. They didn't realize John said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And once again, these men were sincere. They were sincere in their beliefs, but their beliefs were sincerely uninformed. They were sincerely wrong and they needed to hear the gospel when they did they believed and when they believed they were baptized now something else happened at this time i want to mention just briefly verse 6 says and when paul had laid hands on them the holy spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied now the men were about 12 in all and let me point out, I don't believe this is a case of people receiving the Holy Spirit separate from salvation. This is a case of people receiving the Holy Spirit at the time of their salvation. And the Bible tells us they had this Pentecostal type experience. Why? So that everybody would know that these men who had been followers of John were now part of the same body of Christ and had believed in the same gospel as everybody else. But here are these two stories back to back. Stories of men who were sincere. Apollos was sincere. These 12 followers of John were sincere. But we see in both cases, sincerity was not enough. In both cases, they needed to hear the gospel. They needed someone to tell them that Jesus was the Son of God, that He lived a perfect life, that He died on the cross, taking our place, suffering for our sins, that He was buried and He rose again on the third day. They needed to know that only Jesus did that, only Jesus loved us enough that He was willing to do that, only Jesus could do that for you and for me, they needed someone to tell them that there's one way they can be saved by placing their faith in Christ alone. And praise the Lord in both cases, that is exactly what took place. But I'm so glad when we read the story of Apollos that he wasn't surrounded by people who said, wow, he sure is eloquent. He knows a lot of scriptures. A lot of holes in his theology, though. But he's sincere, so we'll just leave him alone. I'm so glad he had someone in his life who looked at him and understood that his sincerity was not enough and shared the gospel with him. I'm so glad that when Paul met these men at Ephesus, he didn't say, well, they're followers of John. 
They're sincere. I'll just leave them alone. He understood that sincerity was not enough. And so he shared the gospel with them. They believed, they were saved, and they were baptized. God forbid that there be someone in our midst who is sincere. And we would say of them, they're so sincere, we'll just leave them alone. Does being sincere satisfy God? No, it does not. Does it matter what you believe as long as you are sincere? You better believe it does. And this popular belief in the world today that sincerity is all that matters, as long as you are sincere, it is a myth, it is a lie, it's straight from the pit of hell, and we must reject it. And so I want to wrap up by taking these two stories that we've looked at and just briefly share with you some reasons why we must reject the sincerity myth. Three reasons why this is false and this is dangerous. First of all, the sincerity myth is wrong because it offers an inadequate solution. It offers an inadequate solution. Sincerity is not adequate to save. Sincerity is good. Sincerity is important. But listen to me carefully. Sincerity without truth is dangerous. Sincerity without truth is dangerous. You can sincerely believe that there's a parachute in your backpack. But if you jump from that plane and there's not one, you can pull that string and you are going to fall and you are going to die in spite of your sincere beliefs to the contrary. You can put your faith in a two-legged stool, but if one leg is broken and only two remain and you sit down on it, you are going to fall no matter how sincere your belief in the ability of that stool to hold you up. If you write a check and you sincerely believe that there is money in your account to cover that check, but there is not, your sincerity will not keep that check from bouncing like a rubber ball. Salvation is not sincerity salvation is not having a high opinion of jesus or thinking that he's a good moral teacher salvation is being born again it is being regenerated by grace through faith in christ alone romans 3 25 says we are saved through faith in his blood not through being sincere but through placing our faith in the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, believing that that blood that Jesus shed can wash our sins away. There must be a time in your life where you go beyond sincerity and when you place your faith in Christ. And by the way, there probably was not a man in all of the Bible more sincere than Nicodemus. But when Jesus stood before Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said to him, you, yes, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. Now, this leads to a second problem with the sincerity myth. Not only does it offer an inadequate solution, but it makes a false assumption. 
This belief that sincerity is enough, it makes a false assumption. It assumes that man's nature is basically good. And that a person has it within themselves, apart from Christ, to sincerely reach God and please God. It assumes that given the chance, man will do the right thing. This myth assumes man's goodness is enough. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is none who does good. No, not one. Ladies and gentlemen, we've turned away from God. We've rebelled against God. By our sin, we have tried to dethrone God. And the Bible says, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are blind. We are the enemy of God. Not because God has made us enemies, but because we have made ourselves God's enemies. Romans 1 says man knows the truth, but he represses the truth. Jesus said in John 3, man chooses darkness over light because his deeds are evil. We could go on and on this assumption that man is sincerely good enough to reach God on his own is completely false. But there's one more problem with the sincerity myth, and this is the big one. One more reason why we should reject it. It is guilty of a double standard. The sincerity myth is guilty of a double standard. Here's where we really pull the mask off of the sincerity myth. Someone will say, and we've all heard it, maybe some of you have been guilty of saying it, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But would that person apply that line of thinking to any other area of life? Absolutely not. What would you think about a teacher or a professor who said to a student, all of your answers on this exam were wrong, but because you sincerely believe that all of these answers are right, I'm going to give you an A anyway. We wouldn't think much of that teacher would we, if they base their grades on a student's sincerity? What would you think of a doctor who misdiagnosed you, but he was sincere in his diagnosis? Cost you your life, but he was sincere. What would you think of that surgeon who botched the surgery of a loved one, but they sincerely believed they knew what they were doing, even though they did not? If someone is dry, driving the wrong way down a one-way street and they hit and kill a loved one in your life, will it comfort you at all to know that they sincerely believed that they were driving the right direction? Of course not. And what if there were a man who stood in a human court of law accused of murdering his neighbor, guilty as guilty can be. The evidence could not be more clear. And what if that man were to stand before that judge in a court of law and to say, I am sincerely sorry for my actions. I'm sincerely sorry for what I have done. And the judge were to then look at him and say, you are as guilty as can be, but I can see that you're sincere. And therefore, based on your sincerity, the demands of the law will not be met. Punishment will not be given 
and you will be set free. Couldn't you imagine the world's response? They would demand that judge's removal from the bench. They would say, this is not right. This is not fair. What kind of judge would do such a thing? But then that same man or woman would say of God, who is a greater judge and a higher judge, who is a holy judge, they would say of that judge, I'm guilty, but I'm sincere. Therefore, God will just ignore my sin. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't work. It's hypocritical. It's a double standard. And when you take that line of thinking and apply it to any other area of life, you can see it exposed, and you can see just how false and how dangerous this line of thinking is. You know, there was a time when scientists believed that the cure for a severe fever was to bleed a person out. A lot of people needlessly died because of all the blood that was taken from them. Of course, we now know that this was ridiculous. We know that it was a lie, but listen to me. A lie is still a lie no matter how much you sincerely believe it. You can sincerely believe a lot of things this morning. You can sincerely believe that you're going to go to heaven because of membership in some church. You can sincerely believe that you're going to heaven because you were baptized. You can sincerely believe that you're going to heaven because you're a good person and because you do good deeds or religious works. You can sincerely believe all of those things and you will be sincerely wrong. Sincerity is no substitute for knowing Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not about being sincere. It's about you coming to Jesus and being saved. Heavenly Father, we understand it's not enough just to be sincere. And there are a lot of sincere people in the world. There are a lot of people who would seem to be sincere compared to others. And yet they are sincerely wrong. They are sincerely lost. They are sincerely separated from you. And they need to be saved. And God, maybe there are some in this room even now in such a place Maybe they came here today and they are sincere in what they believe, but they understand that sincerity is not enough. There must be that moment of, of repentance. We turn away from our sin and turn to Christ, declaring Him to be Lord of our lives. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray right now that your Spirit would knock on the doors of hearts if there is even just one man or one woman or one young person in this room today who needs to be saved. And right now they're lost. Right now their lives have been wrecked by sin. Right now they're hopeless. Right now they don't know where they would spend eternity if they died, if that breath they took were their last one. But God, we thank you and we praise you because we know that can change and that can change right now. 
And so, God, we pray for you to move and work and do what only you can do, that that man or woman who's without you would call upon the name of Jesus now and say, Jesus, forgive me, save me. I believe in you. You died for me. You rose again. Be Lord of my life today. My life is now yours. And God, I pray for every one of us here that you would help us to take this message that we've heard and to be willing to boldly proclaim it where we, wherever we go, understanding that it's not popular, understanding that it completely goes against what the world thinks and what the world says. But God, we're not here to please the world. We're here to please you and to glorify you and be faithful to you. So help us, God, to be faithful to what your word says even when it's not popular. And God, I pray you'd have your way in these next moments. Show all of us what you want us to do in response to your word today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.